Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. It is great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. We're excited to continue our study in the Gospel of John. We're covering chapters 5, 6, and 7 in our new series, our new series that we're calling Miraculous Conflict, which sounds like a strange kind of title there. Uh, What's happening is very strange in these chapters. In 5, 6, and 7, what we're going to see is Jesus really does these miraculous signs, and then he makes these really strong statements about his miraculous power. And these signs and these statements are met with a kind of negative response. They, they cause conflict. And this conflict, well, it's surprising. It's shocking. You think it should be followed by acceptance when someone does a miracle or makes a statement of their miraculous power, that there would be kind of clarity and there would be confession and there would be conviction and people would just run to it. But what happens is we actually kind of see the opposite. And that's that's surprising, and that's, it's shocking, and it's also very insightful. I think it's very insightful for us that we learn a lot about ourselves in watching people respond negatively to Jesus' signs and Jesus' statements about his miraculous power. Now, as we continue through this, but, uh, 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 through this series, we're going to see those things. But before we jump right into our text for this morning, I, I want to ask you this question. Can Jesus be admired but not worshipped? Can Jesus be admired, but not worshipped? Can we admire him for his moral principles? Can we admire him for his, his ethical principles? Can we admire his high view of marriage? Can we admire his servitude? Can we admire the value and the dignity that he gives to every individual, no matter their gender or their race or their age? Can we admire him and not acknowledge him as the Son of God, and not worship him, and not adore him, and not reorder all of our life to orbit around him? Can we admire him as kind of a, a, a life coach, a, a, a therapist, somebody who, who makes recommendations, who may challenge us, who may be controversial at times, telling us advice that really stretches us, and wants us to make adjustments? Can we just treat Jesus in, in that category Do we have to adore him? Do we have to bow down to him? Do we have to worship him? I think the answer is, well, we can just adore him and not worship him. But the deeper question is, is he okay with that? Will Jesus allow that? Is Jesus okay with us being fans and not followers? Is Jesus okay with just us admiring him, looking to him for advice, uh, stretching us a little bit, making adjustments on kind of the peripheral and the fringe of our life? Or does Jesus want more than that? Does Jesus want to transform us, to change us, to place something at the center of our life that causes everything else to orbit around it? I think what we'll find is this, is Jesus is not okay with being admired. Jesus is not okay, at least with just being admired. He's not okay with us just being his fan group. (laughs) Jesus wants to be followed. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be adored. Jesus wants to change your life. Jesus does not want to be a therapist. Jesus wants to be more like a surgeon who gives you a heart transplant and changes your identity, makes you a new person. Jesus doesn't want to be your therapist. Jesus wants to be that surgeon who gives you a heart transplant. And here's what we're going to find in our passage this morning. As we jump to John chapter 5, verse 16, we're going to see Jesus teach this principle to a group of people who have seen and witnessed a miracle. A miracle of him healing somebody who was lame, who was paralyzed. And what Jesus will show them is is that he's just not a a teacher or a therapist or a life coach. He's not just somebody who's controversial, and I mean controversy by saying he's not just somebody who challenges the status quo. He's not just somebody who wants to make some adjustments and some improvements. Jesus doesn't want to just give us a better life. Jesus wants to give us life. He wants to reorient every part of our life. And here's what we'll find is the big idea for this passage is this. And so if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. I think this is the central teaching of Jesus in our passage for this morning. And so our big idea for this morning 
is this. Jesus is crucial, not just controversial. Jesus is crucial, not just controversial. Jesus is not just uh, challenging us, uh, uh, forcing us to rethink things and maybe readjust some things. No, Jesus is more than that. Jesus is crucial. It's the most critical question we can ask ourselves when we say, how significant is Jesus? Asking that question is the most important question we could ever ask ourselves. Let me show you how Jesus teaches this to the group that witnessed the healing of the man who was lame in our passage last week. Let's just start right away in John chapter 5. Let's start with verse 16. We're kind of right in the middle of the story that we started last week. Jesus healed this man, and then we saw this man really betray Jesus. Because Jesus came and confronted him about his sin. He told him, yes, you're healed and you are well, but sin no more. And the man did not like that. So he reports Jesus to this group of religious leaders who are starting to oppose Jesus. And so what he does is basically turn Jesus over. He plays the the blame game. He doesn't like what Jesus is doing. He doesn't like how Jesus is intruding on his life. So he says, you know what? I'm going to sick these guys, these religious leaders, after Jesus. Look at how it picks up. Look at verse 16. It says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. So where do you see this? They're coming after Jesus, and the man has kind of led them to him. It's very reminiscent or kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen with the betrayal of Judas, one of Jesus' closest followers. But this man kind of sets this up. They're persecuting Jesus. Halfway through verse 16, it says, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. This is Jesus being controversial here. Jesus is challenging the modern mindset. He's challenging kind of the the established way of doing things, what has become everyday and normal for them. The Jews believed that you needed to completely rest on what's called the Sabbath. This was a part of the The Ten Commandments. This is one of the Ten Commandments that God gave through the leadership of Moses after the people were delivered from the promised land. Or sorry, delivered to the promised land and delivered from Egyptian slavery. On their journey to this wonderful land, God said, here's some rules. We're going to have an agreement. We know that is the Ten Commandments. That's going to go out into many other commandments. But one of the main commandments was to have a day of rest. And Jesus is working on this day of rest rest. This is very controversial. They took this very seriously as they should. Now at this moment, here's what we would anticipate Jesus would do. And we've seen them do this before. Is that when he encounters kind of some religious tension, often what Jesus will do is say, no guys, you misunderstand. Uh, We see this in the gospel of Matthew, where Jesus will challenge their understanding of the Old Testament. He'll say, no, guys, you're missing it. You, you say it means this, but it doesn't mean that. It means this. And I think Jesus could have easily done this with the Sabbath. Because he's not really acting all that controversial. He's not. To them, he is. But to the Old Testament, he's, he's not really. You see, because in the Old Testament, the idea of rest, or the idea of Sabbath was really... Take a break from your job. That's a really good way to understand it. It, it, it meant not that you're not going to move or do anything, but the idea is don't do your normal job. So they feel that Jesus doing a miracle has broken that, or that Jesus telling this man to pick up his mat after he's been healed from his paralysis is somehow breaking that law, which that wouldn't make sense, because that man who was just healed, his job wasn't carrying mats. So he's not breaking the Sabbath. But here's the shocking part about what Jesus does right here. Jesus' response is beyond that. He overlooks that. He doesn't even debate the point with him. Instead of saying, guys, you don't understand the law, Jesus totally changes the conversation. And Jesus says this, you don't understand me. Your problem is, or the problem I'm going to address is not your view of the Sabbath, but your understanding of my supremacy. You're missing who I am. So it's almost like Jesus ignores the controversy, and then he shows them, I am crucial. It is critical 
that you understand the significance of the one standing before you. Right? Look at how Jesus doesn't challenge their misunderstanding of the Old Testament. Rather, he points them to the crucial nature of his identity. Look at his response, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Very simple statement, but it is loaded here with significance. First, it says, my father. What is Jesus saying there? Well, Jesus is not saying our father. He's not kind of speaking on behalf of the corporate people and saying God is our father. The Jews would have agreed with that. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, my father. What is Jesus doing? Jesus giving a specific kind of sense in which... The Father is related to him. That God is related to him. So Jesus is saying, I have something special. I'm not speaking in kind of this corporate kind of sense, but, but God and I have a special relationship. He is my Father. And then he says, my Father is working until now. And I am working. It's a very simple argument that Jesus is saying. It's really an, an argument of comparison. Jesus saying, because the Father is working, I can work. Now, what's the linchpin in there of that entire argument? The Father is working, therefore I can work. Meaning, I am like the Father. I am like my Father. And if my Father can work, well, then it's okay for me to work. Jesus saying, look, God works. God is the one who set up the Sabbath, and really God took the first Sabbath rest. We see this in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God creates all that we know, the universe and and the globe and the promised land. God creates the land, the garden of Eden. He creates that. And so when he's done with that, it says he takes a rest. Now, does that mean that God doesn't work anymore? He's taken his rest and now he's done. He never does any activity, even on the Sabbath. If God's Sabbath is kind of the model and the foundation of the command of Sabbath, and that means we do no work, then is God not working? Of course not. What happens when somebody dies on the Sabbath? And after death, they need to be judged for what they've done. Does God not judge on the Sabbath? What about when a baby is born on the Sabbath? God is said to be intimately involved in that process, that he is a part of that. So does God take the day off? Are no babies born on the Sabbath? Nobody dies on the Sabbath? No, clearly people die and people are born. Larger than that, the Bible speaks about how God holds all of creation together. We call it his providence. God is always working. So there is a sense in which God rested from that initial work, but he continues to work. And then Jesus says, look, the Father is working He's still doing these things. Well, then I can still work. I can do these things because I am like God. See how Jesus just elevated his identity in front of them. Forget this misunderstanding you have about the Sabbath, about what's, what's, what's uh, restricted and what's okay. No, Jesus says, no, 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 look at me. You need to understand. I am like my Father, and my Father can work, therefore, I can work because I am like him. And the Jews, his opponents, they pick this up right away. They see that Jesus has kind of pushed away the Sabbath argument and has now made a statement about his divinity. Look at verse 18. It says that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. I mean, now the opposition is elevated here. Seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, right? That was the minor infraction. That was the controversy. But now this. But he was even calling God his own father. That's a reference to when Jesus said, my father. Even calling God his own father. And what would that mean? Look at the rest of the verse. Making himself equal with God. They saw it. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing with this argument. Jesus was thrusting before them, hey, I'm not here to kind of talk about the nuances of your religion. 
I'm not here just to be controversial and challenge you a little bit and make you be more precise in your theological dissection of the Old Testament. No, he says, I'm here to reorient your entire understanding of God. Your entire religious system needs to have me at the center as God. Now, Jesus is going to clarify here, because I think the Jews have a misunderstanding. When it says they're making himself equal with God, I think they might believe that Jesus is trying to uh, replace God or, or be almost competitive with God, and it be against God. This would make sense. We, we've seen stuff like this in the Old Testament. We saw in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan was tempting Adam and Eve. He said, you should take of this fruit. Why? Because you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So maybe they're hearing in Jesus' words similar words to that of Satan in the garden. They could also be hearing words very similar to the statements that King Nebuchadnezzar made. We see this in Isaiah in the prophet. He rebukes Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and says, you made yourself out to be God, so God judged you. So they may be feeling, wait a second here, are you trying to replace Yahweh? Their name for God, or God's name for himself that he revealed to his people? Are you trying to replace the God of the Old Testament? Are you trying to replace God? Are you, are you trying to be in competition with God? Now Jesus is going to unpack what he means but he's not going to lower what he's said. He is going to make the statement, yes, I am equal with God, but then he's going to explain his relationship with God the Father. So he'll say, yes, I am equal, but I also follow the works that my Father puts before me. I'm equal, yet I follow. And then Jesus will say this, and because I am equal, and I follow the works that my Father does, and I do those works too, then you must worship me. The conclusion is, I am equal to the Father. I follow the Father in His works, and I do His works. Therefore, you must worship me. It's crucial. It's critical. Do you understand the significance of who I am? Look how Jesus unpacks this. Verse 19. Really, there is no more response from the Jews for the entirety of the rest of the passage we're going to cover. Jesus kind of just strikes a teaching monologue here. And is just going to unpack the significance of who he is in relation to the Father. And he's going to say over and over and over again, I am crucial. It is critical that you understand who I am. Look at verse 19. Jesus starts it off. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Look at the description here. Look at, look at, look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. What's being described here? I think the background kind of imagery here in this passage is the idea of, of an apprenticeship. This is very common in the ancient world. This is really how people would be trained to go into the workforce. There would be a, a skilled craftsman, and he would have an apprentice, and he would teach his apprentice everything that he knew. He would teach him his entire craft, whatever it was, maybe carpentry. He would teach him how to do that. And then he would kind of pass along his skills. And then that apprentice would then become the craftsman. And then he would take on apprentice. So, so this was kind of how people were trained to be in the workforce. And really this also had family ties to it. That a father would often be the craftsman. And his apprentice would be one of his sons or all of his sons. And he would teach him his skills and say, come follow me. You're going to be a part of kind of the family business. This was very common in the ancient world. Jesus himself experienced it. We know that Joseph was a carpenter. And he would learn under his father because later he would be called the carpenter of Nazareth. So Jesus took on the skills that he got from his earthly father. This is what he's describing here. You can almost kind of see the Father and the Son in this kind of heavenly workshop, if you will. 
And the father is showing the son because he loves his son and say, here's the work that I do. Follow me in this work. And that's the description, I think, the imagery behind this. Jump back to verse 19. It says, the son can do nothing of his own accord. We shouldn't take that as the son is powerless or has no ability. That's that's the wrong way of thinking it. When, When it says he can do nothing of his own accord, you can also translate that as he does nothing of his own initiative, meaning he follows the father. The father shows him these great works and says, son, I'm that skilled craftsman. Now follow in my footsteps and do these works. That's the idea. Now, now for us, as we think about this, that to us sounds like there's this separation between these two members of the Trinity, between these two members of the Godhead, between the Father and the Son, that would make the Son somehow um, less significant. But that's not how we should understand what's going on here. Jesus is saying, yes, I follow, but I am also equal. Look at verse at the end of verse 19. It says, For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So even he has shown kind of his submissive nature, that he's not in competition with God the Father. He's not competitive. He's not looking to supplant him or replace him. He's saying, no, I follow him. But then in the same sentence he says, yes, but everything the Father does, the Son does. Now think about that for a moment. How could Jesus, the Son, do everything the Father does unless the Son is God? How can all the works that the Father does be done by the Son unless the Son is equal in power and in divinity? He could not. There'd be no way. So Jesus is balancing this kind of tension of, I follow, yet I am equal. And then he says, and because of this, you must worship me. You must adore me. You must follow me. Look at how he wraps that up, that idea up here at the end of verse 22. It says, and greater, or sorry, verse 20. And greater works than these. He's speaking of the miracles that they've seen. Now he's going to say, I can do even more than that. Greater works than these will he show him. The Father will show him these works. And why is that? So that you may marvel at who? At the Son. I'm going to do these works. He's going to show me these works so that you may worship me. What is Jesus saying again? I am crucial. I'm not just controversial. I'm not here just to adjust your theology. I'm not here just to adjust your religious practice, to improve your life, to make small kind of changes on the fringe. No. I'm here to give you new life, a new way of operating entirely. I'm here to drop a new sun in your universe. And every part of your life will orbit that sun like the planets. Look at how he talks about these greater works. Here's, here's the works, really two specific works that he's going to say. And they're, they're only the works that God can do. The two works in specific that he's going to detail out here is this. One is the power to give life. And the other is the authority to judge. So the power to give life, like to resurrect, and the power to judge, to determine what someone's eternal destiny is. Jesus is going to repeat this over and over. And each time he talks about this power and he talks about this authority, he'll say, and that means you must worship me. Look at how Jesus explains these great works. Verse 21. All right, we'll start in the second half of verse 20, just so we kind of get the flow. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. This is significant right here. He's talking about resurrection power. The power to give life, to create life. We saw that in John chapter 1 where it says the word was with God and the word was God, and it speaks of his work of creation. But here it's also speaking of resurrection. Now we have seen Old Testament saints 
The Jews knew of Old Testament saints who uh, displayed that power or God uh, moved in them and there was a resurrection event. We, we see this in Elijah and in Elisha. Both of them pray and God answers their prayers and the person they pray for is resurrected from the dead. But there's something very significant about their display of that power. They had to pray. They didn't have that power in themselves. They didn't have that power at their disposal. They had to beg God to move on their behalf for the person they were praying for. But look what it says about Jesus. Jesus has this resurrection power in him, this life power in him. Look at the second half of verse 21. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. What does it say there? This power is at his disposal. He doesn't need to pray. Simply if he wants to move and desires to do so, he has that kind of power. He has resurrection, life-giving power. Jesus is talking about divine prerogative here. Only things that God can do. Jesus is not saying, I'm like the prophets. He's not saying that. Those great prophets who did that. No, I can give life whenever I want to. Look what else he says, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Wow. Now the Son is determining what is right and what is wrong, and now he is applying that to all of humanity, and he is giving out the sentence for what people have done. Again, this is another work of God. And look at what it says next. And because of this power to resurrect, and because of the authority to judge, look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What is Jesus saying? You must worship me. There's no way to, to, to push away the supremacy of Jesus in this passage. There's just, there's just no way that we can't see that Jesus is making this outlandish kind of statement here. He's saying, I'm not here to debate your little controversy about the Sabbath and can you pick up a mat or not? Or if you can do certain works or not. I'm not here to debate your 39 different types of work that you have put over my command of the Sabbath. I'm not here to talk about that. Jesus kind of focused their mind and says, forget the Sabbath, look at me. I can give life when I want to who I want. And I will judge everyone. Therefore, you must honor me. In fact... If you do not honor me, you do not honor the Father. And you do not honor the Father if you don't honor me. See how Jesus kind of forces the unity of Father and Son here. He's saying, I'm at the center of what your religious practice should be. You have to worship me. You can't miss that. I am crucial and critical, not just controversial. Jesus repeats it. Look at verse 30, or sorry, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus said, when you make the decision to honor me and worship me, it changes the entire trajectory of your life. You move from death to life. It's crucial and critical that you see that understanding who I am is the most significant decision that you'll ever make in your life. That once it's made, as Jesus would say, rightly, you move from death to life. Now, Jesus is going to repeat himself because I think he knows how significant it is. And look at how he just, he kind of repeats the same exact thing he's already said. I have the power to give life. I have the authority to judge. Therefore, I must be honored and worshipped just as the Father is worshipped. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's saying this happens now. Did you see that? Now, later he's going to contrast the idea of this happening in the future. But Jesus says, I have the power to give life and the authority to judge now. He will say later, and I have the power to do that later. 
But here he's speaking about what is happening right now. He says, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of who? Not God the Father, but of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Jesus is speaking about, I'm giving spiritual life. That I'm calling out to those who are spiritually dead. And because I call them, they come out. If you're familiar in a couple chapters, when we get to verse, or sorry, chapter 11, this will be illustrated for us very vividly in the resurrection of Lazarus, where Jesus will call out Lazarus' name to his tomb, and he will physically come out. But Jesus is saying, I do this now. I call out people's name, and they come out from spiritual death into resurrection life right now. Look what he says again about his authority to judge. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, I think this is speaking of future here. And we'll see that because of what's said later. But that term, son of man, it's a very important term. It just doesn't mean the son of a man, right? If we were to break it down just to its parts, that's what it would mean. But it's actually a title. It's a prophetic title from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, in his prophecy, Daniel would speak of a coming figure who would bring authority and, or who would be given authority and power to have a kingdom that would last forever. And that figure is called the son of man. Jesus, that's one of his favorite titles for himself, his son of man. Jesus sees himself as that future figure that Daniel talked about, who was presently here and who would later bring a kingdom, or sorry, being given a kingdom that would last forever. So I think he's talking about the future here. Jesus saying, I will come and execute judgment as the son of man. The father has given me the authority to do that. All right, look at how he speaks also of the future, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is when I think he's speaking of the future here. Say, I will call everyone back. Everybody will come from the dead. Right? The whole uh, sphere of Sheol, right, or the place of the dead, everybody will come out of death, either to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. He's talking about the final separation of humanity. The, the separation was talked about later between the sheep and the goats. This is the final separation of humanity. He says, and there will be a judgment. He ties in the idea of this life-giving power to also the authority to judge. Look again, verse 29. And they will come out, those who have done good, that's a judgment call, right? They have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, the judgment call to the resurrection of judgment. Now, we've got to stop here, just make a small side note here. We should not read John as saying this, that we will be judged only by our works. If you've done enough good, you get a pass. If you've done too much bad, then you don't get a pass. That's not the right way to read John's gospel. Right? The most significant good that we can do is to acknowledge the Son. The greatest evil that we can do is to reject the Son. The greatest work that God wants us to do is to believe in the Son. We, we see this later in chapter 6, in verse 29. It says, And Jesus answered him, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. You see there? He's saying your belief is the work that God would have you do. Now that work will lead to other works, but that is the primary work. You, you, you may have often heard it said in kind of churches that, that we are saved by faith alone. Faith in Christ. Faith in the one whom God sent. We are saved by faith alone, but 
saving faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Meaning, if you have true faith, then true work will come out of that. But we don't flip the order there. There's first belief in the Son as the one sent from God, the one who has died on the cross for our sins, who has been risen from the grave, the one who has conquered death, now extends to us the gift of eternal life. And when we believe in him and we repent of our sins, he transforms us. And by that transformation, good deeds will follow. So what we don't want to do is read in our understanding of doing good, doing bad. No, we have to understand what is John's understanding of doing good and doing bad. And for John, the ultimate work is to believe in the one that God the Father has sent, and that is Christ, his Son. Again, it's crucial and critical to understand the significance of Jesus. Jesus closes this out with a unity statement about him and his Father. Look at verse 30. And I could do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus kind of ties up our passage with a statement again of the unity between him as son and between God the Father. What is Jesus pressing at the forefront of this discussion? Jesus is saying, you must come to grips with the significance of my identity. Jesus is not okay with just being admired. Jesus is not okay with having fans. Jesus is not okay with being our life coach. Jesus is not okay with just making adjustments to our behaviors. Jesus is not okay with just making our lives better. Jesus is not okay in just being controversial. Jesus is not okay with just making those, oh, that stretched me a little bit. I'm going to make some improvement. Jesus is not okay with being placed in that category. He will not allow that. We have to hear the strength of Jesus' argument here is, I am like God. Sure, I do miracles, but I do greater works than that. Prophets have done miracles. There are miracles in the Old Testament. Many servants of God have done miracles. But Jesus says, you know what I do? I resurrect anybody I want to. And my pleasure and my will, I can speak life to somebody who's dead. And not just physical life. I can speak spiritual life. I can cause somebody to be born again. And I have the authority to judge. I have the authority to divide humanity. I have the authority not only to call the dead to life, but then to determine where they will spend their eternal life, whether in judgment or in life with me. I'm not here to be your life coach to be your therapist. I'm here to be worshipped, to be adored. I'm here to be followed. So so what do we do with that? How does this affect our everyday lives? How does this affect Monday through Saturday? Well, Well, maybe you're listening to this, and you would consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me just ask you a, a really thought-provoking, maybe hard question. Ask yourself this question. Are you a fan or are you a follower? If you're a fan of a team, you admire that team, you're inspired by that team, you may show signs of loyalty and dedication to that team. You wear a jersey, a ball cap, something like that. And it's true that Jesus can be admired. He can inspire us. But following Jesus is deeper than that. Here's a great, great test question. If you want to determine if you're a fan or a follower, here's here's one way to determine that. Ask yourself this question. When you disagree with Jesus... Do you still obey Jesus? When you don't like something Jesus says, do you adjust 
or do you ignore? If you only listen to the portions of the Bible that you agree with and ignore the portions you don't agree with, then you're not following. At that point, you're in charge. You're the one leading. You're just citing God as a reference when he agrees with you. When the Bible says something that, that, that you don't like about sexuality, do you adjust or do you ignore? When the Bible says something you don't like about finances, about how to spend your money, do you adjust or do you ignore? When the Bible tells you something you don't like about praying for the political powers that are in place, right? that's always the hard one after November. But half the Christians in the nations struggle with that one after November. And the other half will struggle in four years after that November. But do you, do you adjust or, or do you ignore? See, in our, in our devotional life, this should be an experience of every follower of Jesus Christ. You should, at times, maybe several times, have found yourself reading the Bible, maybe specifically the teachings of Jesus. And you, you should have had the experience of saying to yourself, man, I don't like that. And what I mean by that is, if I were the author, I wouldn't write that. That's not easy for me to hear. I don't, I don't like that. But I'm going to obey that. We should feel the tension when we read this book. That this book is up here. And this guy has to catch up to this guy. That, that this guy, we're not waiting for this guy to catch up to this guy. But we should feel the tension that, that it's hard to follow what's in this book. It's hard to follow the sayings of Jesus. I remember as a very young Christian reading the Sermon on the Mount and feeling myself to be a pretty good and decent person. And then reading the words of Jesus when he said, you know what, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, then you've committed murder. And first I thought I was off the hook because I had no brother. I only had a sister. <laughs> but then I realized, no, Jesus was expanding that out. And I remember reading that part and thinking to myself, and I may have just shut my Bible and said, well, hold on a second. So you're telling me I've got to be obedient in my heart and not just in my hands? In my inward actions and not just my outward actions? I remember finding that so incredibly troubling. I remember in the first couple years of my journey with Jesus, I remember times reading the scriptures and being sick to my stomach because I was so challenged by what Jesus was calling me to do. And I didn't like it, but I knew I had to obey it because he's the boss. He's at the center. He deserves my worship, my honor, and my devotion. And if I'm truly following him, I'll obey him even if I disagree with him. If you have never had that experience of reading this book and not liking a portion of it, not feeling that tension of what it's calling you to, if you've never felt that reading this book is hard, then you may be reading this book and hearing your voice and not God's voice. And that is a very dangerous place to be. Here's my prayer for you this week. For everybody who's going to have a devotional life, a devotional day after watching this. And I, I hope you do. I hope you have a deep devotional life. And if you don't have one, use the VBC Daily Threes as a model for your devotion. Those are wonderful things for you to be a part of. My prayer this week is that you would read a portion of this book and you would find yourself with that kind of tension experience of like, I don't like this. If I were writing this thing, I wouldn't have said that. 
but I'm going to obey it. And why do I want you to have that experience? Not because I want you to have some unpleasant, unpleasant experience or feel uncomfortable or, or have a difficult experience. I want you to be assured that you're a follower and not just a fan. That Jesus is your Savior and your Lord and your God and not just your life coach or someone you get good advice from. He is not okay with being that. He will not be satisfied with his engagement with you until he has completely transformed the entirety of your life. He doesn't want to just be admired, and he doesn't want to just give you advice. He wants your worship and nothing less, and he's not satisfied until he gets that. And that means it stretches us. Now, maybe you're here, and you're listening to this, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You would say, you know what, I'm not yet a follower of Jesus. I'm kind of exploring this stuff, and, and I'm just, I'm starting to ask more spiritual questions than I ever have before. Well, first, let me, let me say thank you. Thank you for, for joining us, and thanking you for letting us be a part of that journey. That, that excites me that you've allowed us and honored us with the privilege of being a part of that. From this passage, I hope you see that your decision about Jesus is the most crucial and critical decision that you will make in your entire life. There's no more important decision that you will make in your life. No more important question that you'll ask yourself. No more important answer that you'll have to formulate than the one that says, how significant is Jesus. And because it's so crucial and because it's so critical, I hope it is the most well-informed decision of your life. One of the saddest moments I experience as a pastor is those at at the end of their life who have never asked spiritual questions before that moment. And there's that kind of panicked state to know more, to grasp more before time is up. That is a state that I hope no one ever experiences. And I want to tell you, I hope that before the end of your life, you ask questions about the end of life. I hope you don't wait till the end of your life to ask questions about the end of life. I I would rather you explore the questions about Jesus and the questions about this book in the richness of this church, in the richness of this community, and come to a completely different decision than me, than than you never having explored the questions at all. I'd rather have you have well-informed unbelief than indifference. So if you're at a place where you still have questions or hesitations or you're just not comfortable yet with the commitment level that Jesus Christ is asking you to have, please hear me. This is the, the best place for you to be. I went to church for months before I ever became a Christian because I needed an environment where I could ask those questions, where I can make a well-informed decision. And I think you will find this church is a safe place for that. It's been that for hundreds of people, thousands of people have found this as a safe haven for doubt, for question, for hesitation, for anger, for hurt, all those things. This is a great place to jump over any spiritual hurdle on the road to Jesus. Please, make the decision about Jesus your most well-informed decision of your life. Keep coming back. Keep coming to these services. Keep engaging with what we offer here at our church. And please, feel free, reach out to us. We'd love to walk with you on wherever you are in your journey towards Jesus. Let's pray together.
Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we can call you Father. What a wonderful title. What a wonderful term that we can give to you. Such an affectionate term. Such a a wonderful term. Such an emotional term. We can call you Father. Just like Jesus Christ, your son, did in this passage. We can say, my Father. And we can say that because we are in Jesus Christ. That we are clothed in his righteousness. That all of our sins have been forgiven And all his righteousness has been accredited to us because we've placed our faith in Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that you be with everyone, everyone this week. For those that would say that they're a follower of Christ, they've been a Christian for a while, I pray, Father, that you would give them those experiences as they read the word that we were talking about, that experience of feeling the tension the challenge, the the stretching that the scriptures cause in us, that they probe us to be better, to do more, to be more sacrificial, more loving, more patient, more kind. I pray, Father, that, that everybody who listens to this service would experience a time where you stretch them and they have to say to themselves, I may not like it, but I'm going to obey it because I trust that's what's best for me. Father, we all need those moments. And I pray in that moment there be an affirmation for them that in that experience what they're finding is that they're a true follower of Jesus. Even in times where we are commanded to trust, even in trials where we don't understand the why, I pray we would still trust you Even though it doesn't feel right, it's not emotionally the right decision, but we'll say to ourselves, this is what my Jesus asks of me, so this is what I will give him. Assure us all that we are followers and not just fans. And Father, for those that don't yet know you, who wouldn't say they have a relationship with you, oh Father, I pray you'd meet them this week as well. I pray that you'd confirm to them the messages that are in this book and the primary message of Jesus Christ, that he is our Savior. He is the one who died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. I pray, Father, they would trust in his death and resurrection. They would turn their lives over to you and start following you. Father, wherever they are on their spiritual journey, I pray that you would continue to draw them and call them for you. I pray that maybe even if this is the first time they've ever witnessed one of our services, they say, I got to come back. I got to hear more. I may not all agree with it. It may not check all the boxes in my mind, but there's something compelling about this Jesus, and I must know more. Father, I think you reward that response, and I pray that you continue to draw them to yourself. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for our online service. We look forward to seeing you again next Sunday.